0: Welcome to the Elevating Voices in Leadership podcast brought to you in partnership with Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Education. I'm Dr. Gabriela Miramontes and I will be your host. With me today are my co-hosts, Ms. Charlotta Green and Ms. Aida Jafari. Um, Our guest today is Mr. Robert Reyes. He's the Director of Inclusive Excellence Learning at Cal State Sacramento. Previously, he was in the K-12 arena, serving as teacher, union organizer, and liaison between staff and administration. Let's welcome Rob, and he will get started with our questions. Hi, all. (laughs) So, Rob, what drove you to change your career from K-12 to higher ed?
1: Uh, Well, I've been, uh, I would say, the last 17 years in K-12, working in elementary school. Um, and I found a need for discussion and engagement surrounding diversity, equity, inclusion practices for the stakeholders at my school site. Um, and the conversation obviously has been brewing. I felt that, uh, you know, my reach wasn't long enough, to be honest. Um, it's wonderful to be able to support parents, students, and staff um at one school site but I was hoping with my doctorate from Pepperdine and everything I've learned over the years uh to hopefully support and empower a larger number of people um a greater and more diverse uh subset of communities especially those that are traditionally or historically marginalized processes that are in place right now. Higher ed seemed like a great fit uh especially um you know, as you know, I'm, uh, I'm getting my EDD in organizational leadership and this leap to institutional problem um, solving seems like uh, the right fit for me. And this amazing opportunity came up in Sacramento and I jumped on it.
0: Tell us more. Tell us a little more about that role. Tell us about what you're doing and, and how, how that has progressed for you thus far.
1: Okay, well, it's super complicated. I'll just start there. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting an EDD versus a, a PhD, of EDD's focus on practical application of the theories and the frameworks. But as much as we talk about it, really that human element sort of gets in the way and institutional history gets in the way. And um, I think mostly institutional behavior is a a hard thing to overcome. So um, for me, my role as Director of Inclusive Excellence Learning is I'm focusing, it's very institution-facing. So I'm right now going around having a lot of coffee, more coffee than I've ever had, right? One-on-ones with uh, a vast variety of stakeholders, just to understand what their experience has been, what they view as the um equity gaps and issues that are present uh, on campus inclusion uh, in terms of uh, asking people to make decisions uh, in, in collective in sort of collective governance and ensuring that the needs within every college are being met because they're different and it's and this work is very contextual. Um, so I'm in charge of finding that information, gathering it, and beginning to create experiences. Uh, where people can sit in circles and talk, where they can feel safe to um, be transparent about some of the ways that the institution has supported them and some of the ways that it has caused harm. Uh, Really looking at some of the policies and practices that have been around for years, if not decades, uh, while at the same time, demographics of students and teachers have shifted. Uh, and those policies and practices may not appropriately serve uh, a new population of people. Um, Sac State, uh, as we like to call it, uh, colloquially, is um, a minority-serving Hispanic and uh, Asian-serving institution. However, we're noticing a lot of the professors uh, are not of the same sort of racial or gender demographic Uh, for the students who need really to see themselves in these leadership positions, uh, need to be taught by people who understand them culturally, who uh, can see themselves within the curriculum. Uh, And that's a big ask, you know? Uh, This institution has been around for a long time. It it does serve the region in Northern California. So the opportunity is there. the how is really really the question, right? How do we strategically plan? How do we implement some of the frameworks that we found to be uh, effective? How do we find innovative and cut- cutting edge research that is would help guide us? And even then, how do you implement all that? I mean, we don't have the guidance. So it's a uh, as far as I'm very enthusiastic and I can't wait to get started, uh, there is a sense for me of respecting what people have experienced respecting the fact that there may be some mistrust. How do we begin to sensitively together, collectively ask what is the culture we want to create?
2: So in keeping that in mind, how does your current role align with your views on diversity, equity, and inclusion?
1: Well, I think it's about elevating those voices that have not been heard. And I think mm-hmm. it's also about amplifying the need in an authentic way that is that is really looking at and confronting the institutions that have been or are still in place uh, and with some sensitivity. So I really believe in institutional change efforts. Um, It does take all hands on deck. It does take some modeling from leadership, which, you know, in institutions, the sources of power, people like to keep those um, where they are. And Mm -hmm. when leadership says, we want change, is one thing, right?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Actually walking that talk is quite another. And I I find that to be where I, I really sit comfortably. It's the, how do we guide people from all across different perspectives, different ways of thinking, different backgrounds? How do we bring them together to do that heart work in a way that is safe. Um, That really begins to investigate where are those sources of our own identity? Where are those sources of of our own perspective? Where are they coming from? Who taught us? How did the media come into play? How did our parents, our upbringing, our religious uh, beliefs, how did our community experiences, you know, the... And it's, it's all tied in together. So this is a really interesting opportunity for me to understand the complexity of not just intersectionality as it, as it uh, kind of shows up in ourselves, but how does it show up in 35,000 strong institutions where there are so many moving parts and so many really great programs that people aren't really aware of, but they've been there. And how do we also acknowledge authentically and again from the heart, because that's where I fit in, I think is, I really believe this is hard work Change is slow, but how do we begin to acknowledge those heroes and those pioneers who have been doing this work in isolation for a long time, who have been in, in many cases, culturally taxed to lead the way, but haven't really had the support and the resources to do that well. Look at, let's say, faculty who have spent a lot of time and energy trying to infuse equity and inclusion work, infuse anti-racism pedagogies and feminist practices, Um, how do we make sure, first of all, that they get a break, right? So who's taking over for them? How do we make sure that we uh, continue to incentivize them through awards and grants and and acknowledgement. I, I think, especially in higher ed, that acknowledgement piece is really important. Uh-oh, I think we
0: lost you.
1: Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, so fine. <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm sorry, I don't know
1: where you lost me, but uh, hopefully that answered some of your questions. <laughs> it did. We it lost did.
0: the last few, few seconds there, um, but, it's interesting that you say that I, being, you mm-hmm. know, uh, in, a, in a higher ed institution, whether Pepperdine or in Sacramento, mm-hmm. um, one of the struggles is representation, and we hear it, you know, especially mm-hmm. those faculty that, you know, like myself that are faculty of color. Um, I, I have students that are like, you know, I've gone through undergrad and, and masters and doctorate, and you're the first mm-hmm. person or your first Latina or first more concretely of Mexican descent that I've seen, or, you know, and, mm-hmm. and for me, it's, I don't, I, as a student, I wasn't paying attention mm-hmm. um, because it wasn't part of the conversation. So now that it's a mm-hmm. part of the conversation, I realized how different that experience might've been. I was lucky enough to have faculty that mentored me regardless. Um, and we t- we've talked about mentorship before. We've talked about sponsorship um but it's interesting that you talk about you know the the work that especially uh faculty of color you know they take on just for for the opportunity to provide students a safe space right it's not this work that we're doing to get recognition or compensation because i don't know if you've already noticed this already but faculty don't get compensated for the extra Mm -hmm. stuff they do right And so it's this idea of being present and you brought up uh, safety and, and, you know, being a safe space. Um, And we've talked about psychological safety in the past as well, but I have to wonder if having a representation also serves as an opportunity to see yourself in those areas, right? So I never thought of becoming a faculty. That was the furthest thing from my mind. Like, honestly, It was one of those things where I never thought I could aspire to that. I didn't have that kind of career path or career goal. So I have to wonder in the work you're doing, um, do you see or, let's see, what what am I trying to ask here? Um, In the work you do now, when you're talking to faculty, when you're talking to administration, what is your perception around this idea of representation? Because obviously you've already said that you don't see it as much, although organizations of higher ed are trying to do more. I mean, we just started our postdoc, you know, trying for that very reason. Um, but do you see the needle moving in any way, shape, or form?
1: Well, okay, so I feel like there's a lot in there, so I'm I'm just gonna say a yes. to to use my DEI lens and tell my story. Uh, I am a Puerto Rican Dominican from New Jersey uh, went to school and I grew up in a very white suburban neighborhood I lost my Spanish young I never regained that because I didn't value it as much as I do now and I'm kicking myself of course that I didn't really embrace that cultural aspect of myself but I think part of that is because I didn't have a real impactful experience with a Latino in that role that you're talking about until my master's program at Cal State LA. So think about all of these years of the hidden curriculum that we're teaching our children, that they don't belong in these spaces. And these spaces are uniquely designed for people to be able to express themselves in this way and share diverse mindsets and ideas and and, and debate you know, with some level of civility, you know? And that's really, you're seeing an impact everywhere, that inability. Um, Here, I'm very proud to say that there are shifts being made in the hiring practices. We're doing a train the trainer program right now. My colleague, uh, Lina Rincón, who uh, is um, one of my other director colleagues. Uh, She's working with faculty fellows who are faculty who go and support other faculty they, ne- they have no, no interaction with. So that at least is, is a beautiful way to have conversation without feeling any sense of um, mistrust, right? There's an opening there. And what we're doing is we're trying to create opportunities, webinars and professional development on how these trainers can go to uh, hiring committees and talk about how you can de, sort of de-bias, uh, resumes, the way we look at resumes, what we're really looking for, uh, making sure that we're embedding DEI lenses into how we even articulate the role when we put it out there, uh, the kinds of questions we ask in interviews. Now, this is a slow process and it's hard because people need, really, You know faculty have no time as you said it's not like you're getting extra compensation it's not like they're giving you extra you know they're taking a class away so you can engage in this your your schedule is packed so I honor that I respect that how do we get guidance to you that is quick and easily digestible and actually makes an impact and that is hard it is hard to figure that out it's hard to condense the theory of it all Uh, And for me, it's hard to like stop myself from saying, let's look at this whole thing from a historical perspective and then we'll get there like nobody wants to really no one has the bandwidth to do that. And that's that 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 presents an interesting challenge that we did not discuss as a student in class, we didn't have that practical kind of conversation of all the barriers that get in the way. Right. And I think resistance really is a thing. I mean, it is such a huge thing. I, uh, I like to think of myself as someone who wants to roll with resistance, meaning that these are teachable moments that we as facilitators of anything should not become defensive because there's an opportunity for a teachable moment. But that is hard, that's easier said than actually done, right? So taking it slow and recognizing that one step is a step in the right direction, and nothing has to be solved overnight. Is an important part of how change is made. How faculties, how we start to engage faculty in the hiring of more brown, brown folks, more black folks, more women. Right. Um, it's going to take some time. I mean, uh, even the pipeline from adjunct to tenure track that whole thing has to be really examined and redesigned, right? Um, and that's that's a big job. So, you know, we're starting with the hiring practices and we'll move to another aspect of, uh, of representation. But I think this this other more important thing is the folks that are here, how are we including them in, in anything we're doing? How are we giving them opportunities to become leaders, right? How are we, uh, gaining their insight and asking what they're doing on, in the grassroots ground floor that we can adopt because it's a very big disconnect between what happens in the classroom and what we're doing here in administration. That's a whole, we're missing something. And I think we need to create more opportunity for dialogue that doesn't exist right now,
2: mm-hmm.
1: seeing it happen. It is very slow, more slow than I would like, but it is the way it goes. So like i said not- my paciencia is my new <laughs> is my new like mantra just chill <laughs> um,
2: so I, to build on what you were saying as far as like teachable moments and resistance um we're living in a space where resistance is really um part of the culture like it's like we don't care um and um and the academy gets hit hard at that space, right? It's it's not because people don't want to, but there there's a whole wall of you know misinformation and resistance that makes it very difficult. When you think about the way um, educators are trained, um, the the institutions that they are coming out of, um, these traditional uh, platforms, frameworks, theoretical frameworks that are Western facing. Um, and then you're, you're striving to shift all of that. Like, um, when you, when you're breathing through Mm -hmm. all, all that stuff, um, what do you find is the one thing that you, you would like for, um, those who are training this next generation, um, of educators to prioritize knowing that you have all these other frameworks that you're, you're gonna bump up against um, that aren't diversity, equity, inclusion focused. We give voice to it, right? But sometimes those frameworks are not there. We throw a language on it, but we don't necessarily show people how to work it out.
1: I think that is the number one problem,
2: right? Okay. We have a lot of
1: guidelines. Like uh, here at Sac State, they put out before I arrived an anti-racism and inclusive action plan.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It is 300 pages.
2: <laughs> they not reading it.
1: <laughs> well, it just came out and there is a lot of pressure to get it going.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The word plan is an expectation <laughs> that doesn't exist.
2: Right. It the is,
1: there are goals,
2: uh-huh. there are
1: objectives, yes. but there is no roadmap. So that's not really a plan. Right, it's not a plan how to get from A to B. It is mm-hmm. what would be so wonderful to have. Now, all of them are vital,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but where do you start? Right. How do you prioritize? Mm-hmm. How do you strategically engage folks? That's a lot, it's a lot.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think the most important part in, in any strategic engagement opportunity is to bring as many voices in as possible. I don't mm-hmm. think that that has happened And I don't think that happens across any institution. Everything is siloed. There's a lack of transparency. And that's because people are afraid to admit that they've done some harm. And I think that that's okay. I mean, I wouldn't want to admit that, but there needs to be a level of accountability that isn't there, or at least isn't built into the structure. I think also a very important piece that I can find myself saying over and over again is, this is not about any one individual. It's not about their choices. It's not about their actions. It's about the structure, the system, the policies, the laws, the regulations that have allowed mm-hmm. some to be advantaged while simultaneously disadvantaging others purposefully. We talk about this in our organizational leadership. We talk about every system is perfectly built to get the result it gets. And when you try to push against the system in an additive way,
2: Mm-hmm.
1: the system will course correct at some point and smack you right in the face mm-hmm. so we have to start talking about and really again i think it's so vital go back to how did this structure of the federal government of the way that we how about our economy mm-hmm. where did that come from on on the backs of stolen people right, right. the land we sit on We stole that too and exterminated entire peoples. Mm -hmm. We have to be real honest about that. Because if we're not, then we can't understand how those, some of these policies and practices that really are to uphold white supremacy and infiltrate across everything. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, doesn't matter what institution, what organization, what field, it is alive and thriving because we haven't really traced it back to say here are the moments that have created where we are today Mm -hmm. whether that's in my own life whether that's at my institution in my community those conversations need to happen a real coming to uh i don't know I, i always get these r words mixed up right restoration reclamation um restitution you know like there's so many different ways that we can engage in healing but Mm -hmm. the core of that is about truth
2: right and truth telling is not on the top priority list right it really isn't
1: because people want to obfuscate their responsibility for perpetuating harm and i think a lot of that also has to do with this zero tolerance and cancel culture notion that really is like you said eurocentric in in the way that we Mm -hmm. uh, address Mm -hmm. sort of conflict
2: Mm -hmm.
1: punitive only i'll give you an example we implemented a bias response tool the bias response tool is you know you go online and you hit a button and you say I am this uh, stakeholder and this is what I think. And, and immediately that goes to my other director. And I want I want you to know, the division is three directors, three people trying to help <laughs> everybody, right? Uh, and she has to then meet with these people one-on-one to get an intake of what is the level that we're at and who, what does that trigger for other people to get involved. But everyone has had in their past experience, anytime you try to put some sort of compliance aspect in, it's, hold on, academic freedom. Hold on, punitive, only punitive, right? Everyone's scared stiff of making a mistake. So when do we get to a point where, and this is where this bias response tool is so interesting, there's a restorative justice element put in. Anyone who's been impacted, like significantly impacted, comes together and talks Mm -hmm. so that, and forgiveness is not on the table always, but a restoration of peace, of balance, of my voice's self-worth, right? My my (laughs) perception, the relationship can begin to to rebuild. That is where we're headed here Mm -hmm. at Sac State. However, you tell that to faculty, for example, and they will not believe you. They don't even need to look at the tool to know that there's a lie in there because that's what it's always been. How can I? How can we fault them for that? We can't. Okay. Until we say, hey, this is the way administration has treated in the past. Mm-hmm. This is the way some of the policies have impacted you in the past. We need to hear what that's done to you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And until you provide that space, then we can't really get to the starting to shift things.
2: I think it's interesting as you're. I'm listening to you talk. Um, part of it is language, so we we keep talking it. To... <laughs> it happens all the time. Sorry. <laughs> oh,
1: that's great. Like,
2: yeah. That's awesome.
1: Every meeting, I'm like, oh. Ah. <laughs> um,
2: but we're, we're, it, I'm listening to you talk, and it's very much outside of the heart-centered space that you started with. It's the stakeholders. It's the, you know, it, it's this language that um, doesn't humanize what it is that you're seeking to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not stakeholders. These are people. This, this is their right. life, you know? I mean, and so I wonder how much of it is... Um, As I'm listening to you talk about, I mean, and I love your enthusiasm and I'm excited to see what you're able to do in this new position. Um, How much of it is humanizing?
1: Well, okay. I want to say this in a way that doesn't in any way diminish the work of my predecessor.
2: Right, right. I, I don't want
1: that. I think the materials that were left here, the work that was done, I have to credit it. I honor it. Mm -hmm. But I'm noticing a a lecture type quality Mm
2: -hmm. to
1: um, disseminating information Mm -hmm. as opposed to real complex dynamic engagement. And I think I have an opportunity here to infuse that into what has been left behind Mm
2: -hmm.
1: as a way then to steer us into this is the way we're always going to come for each other. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to show up this way for you. You're going to show up this way for me. That's a cultural thing that needs to be decided upon with all of those human hearts that you're talking about. It can't be decided upon as a reaction from the highest levels, can't be decided upon in isolation in one college or another. It has to be decided Mm -hmm. upon by all of us. So, one of my priorities not just common language, but common communication strategies. When we come together, if it's in testimony, then we're not cross-talking and there is no opportunity to get into some sort of conflict. You are simply voicing your perspective and experience. When we come together in dialogue, we will have a different set of protocols, right? Which will keep us, hopefully, in a respectful, debating right? Everything that you want in education.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But we have to articulate that. We have to provide opportunities to practice until it becomes the habit that we want. Right now, there there aren't really those opportunities. We are starting to develop and design them, but haven't been here.
0: And it's interesting, you mentioned the whole idea of lecturing and and part of, you know, and we've had these conversations, um, many conversations similar to this, you know, in, in a variety of different groups, but this idea of that lecturing piece that it's almost talking down or, or it's blame or, and it shuts people off, you mm-hmm. know, finding a, a communication style where people aren't, don't get defensive, I think is critical. Um, and to your point, you, that engagement piece is so important. Having that opportunity to dialogue in a safe space, regardless of, uh, what you bring to the table you and I have had multiple conversations outside of this space mm-hmm. um, where we've talked about, and, and Charlotte and I have had very similar conversations as well, where we talk about this idea of, um, you know, uh, of open dialogue and communication, having having res- mutual respect, honoring each other's humanities, regardless of background, um, as opposed to, as you called it earlier, that cancel culture, right? Because when we shut people down, when we make them feel blamed, when when we make them feel like The system is their fault um it isn't like all of a sudden the switch turns instead we create a wall almost a barrier or even more challenges and and people you know we're seeing it in our society so much where people are like so divided right and you only engage with people that have those same ideas the same beliefs as you and it can go either side i'm not i'm not playing partisan here um obviously I'm more on the liberal, liberal perspective. So there's that, but we create these echo chambers and Charlotte, you and I have talked about this before. When you mm-hmm. create those echo-, echo chambers, there's no opportunity for engagement because we're not willing to see beyond our own perspective. We're not willing to see beyond our own experience and we can't honor anybody else. And so I think that what you're sharing and what you're doing is actually really important because it sounds mm-hmm. like that's in in that restorative space, you're allowing for people to have their own experiences and still have that same conversation and kind of open dialogue. Yeah,
1: and and, you know, there, uh, you know, Google this, um, calling in versus calling out is a big, Mm -hmm. big conversation we're having here. Now there is a place to call people out. There is a time and place to call someone out, to shut down a, a, a racist conversation, Violent a- a- actions, right? There is a time, but we have lost the skill set of speaking across differences. And in order to even understand another perspective, mm-hmm. the questions that we have to ask ourselves need to be open ended, they need to be um, enhancing and perpetuating continuous dialogue it needs to be okay for someone to think differently than you mm-hmm. even if you feel that that difference is abhorrent inside it's still we still need to create spaces where people can have dialogue because mm-hmm. in that dialogue is where we create that shared meaning that charlotte is talking about we create shared language we create as we all know for any team effectiveness we create right values a vision and it's all collectively uh, uh, established without that we're talking across purposes we're angry at each other we won't even listen to a- any word that someone else has to say you're seeing that you're seeing that in this whole infrastructure plan that biden's trying to get past mm-hmm. right folks within the democratic party can't even align Mm-hmm. That's because everyone's trying to do business as usual. Instead of figuring out what is the need of the now, mm-hmm. how can we approach it differently mm-hmm. than we've always approached it. That status quo doesn't fit anymore. And I think the drivers of that really are the students. I mean, the student voice, it's hard to ignore mm-hmm. when students are calling for, hey, you're creating anti-racism task force and no one's invited us. Why? Why? You don't really have a good answer for that. So, you know, part of the work I'm doing here is with the student government to really encourage them. Hey, speak as a single body. Make sure you are really articulate about what you want. And when you are denied, ask again. Ask differently. Ask louder. Mm -hmm. Because it's really hard to say no to your clients. And they really are your clients, right? We as teachers, whether we're in K-12 or higher ed, these are the people we are serving. And in order to serve our students, we're gonna to have to take a look at our practices and identify which are the best practices and which practices we need to throw out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's hard. I know in K-12, it's hard because mm-hmm. A, there's not a lot of respect in K-12. Right. We don't respect the teachers don't respect the the amount of work and really complex, you are so many different roles at once for these for those little babies, right? When we get to higher ed, we're like, oh, you're on your own, but it isn't true for them either. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration between K-12 and higher ed in order to make sure students are not only college and career ready, are not only financially literate, but are also, bias literate diversity equity inclusion knowledgeable are anti-racist pedagogical in the way that they work they know the methods they know why this is important because
2: Mm
1: -hmm. again it's one thing to say you are something it's another thing to actively work against the opposite of what you are Mm -hmm. that's a supreme importance to understand and also to develop the skills for that seniors from k-12 already ready to come in here and make change but that means that we have to support k-12 in getting that done we can't expect it to happen especially when they have no real power to infuse that into their curriculum uh, have those conversations
2: you are talking from an abundance um, mindset as opposed to a scarcity mindset so all that you've been talking about um, is, you know, foundationally built on there's more than enough to go around. We have to figure out how to share it.
1: Not only share it, but connect those folks right. so that your entity is not mm-hmm. overworked when someone else is doing the exact same thing. Right. That drives me crazy, and I see it all the time. Did you know someone else in the other college is doing the same thing? You could, you know how the, the reach could expand? mm mm-hmm. You know, and this is, for me, it's not, it's never this deficit model of thinking, right? I'm never, uh, you know, I, I'm not a SWAT person. I'm more of a sore individual. And I think these opportunities for improvement, and I learned that from Dr. Miramontes, right? Mm-hmm. This, this um, kind of compassionate framework, this appreciative mm-hmm. inquiry. Um, because before it was always, what's not working? How do we identify? How do we, but it doesn't honor all the things that are. And it doesn't allow us to say, okay, why is this working? How do we scale it up? How do we Mm -hmm. expand it? How do we fit it into a different context? And that's where innovation really comes into play uh, and sustainability. And listen, all of this work that's been done, it gets done. And then, you know, after a year of training, they're like, okay, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: where is the sustainability of that? Where, where do, does that one cohort then become the trainers of the next cohort or begin mm-hmm. to split off and create their own programming, right? Mm-hmm. We have a speaker series where we have decided to highlight those who fight against the system, anti-racists.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We just had a man named um, Zach Norris, who is the executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. He's come in. And he talks about fighting against criminal justice, especially juvenile criminal justice systems that are, as we know, inherently racist, inherently mm-hmm. oppressive, um, infusing that restorative justice element. He, he and his community members have uh, shut down five different juvenile centers across Northern California. I mean, that's humongous, but mm-hmm. what he did was the center brought these different entities together to create, you know, it's like a powerful fist, right? Mm-hmm. You bring all of these different pieces. We can do that on a closed campus. Mm-hmm. We just have to think strategically about how that works. For that, I have to understand what the history of these people's relationship is, because I need to honor that before we can move forward. I think that needs to happen on all levels. One more thing I want to say, I know, I'm just talking, you're not even asking the questions, but um, this idea of, like, identity, Mm -hmm. which really is at the core of diversity, equity, inclusion, right, this identity work, the institutions have to do that, too, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and part of that is, at least here, are you a research-centered institution, or are you a learning-centered institution? That's kind of the first basic tenet that we really need to understand. And, you know, I get institutions are also businesses. You have to compete in the market for students, for great faculty, for incredible programming. But when you start adopting policies, practices, ways of being from elite research institutions and you're a minority serving institution that is really best practices, learning-based centered, but we, we've somehow become the other thing. Who does that serve? It's not serving our minority students who are the majority here. It's not serving our minority faculty who are the minority here. We haven't even admitted that we are a women-centered institution either. We have more female students than any, that. Than males. And the male, male uh, enrollment is declining, especially for white men. So there's an opportunity here because a shift is already taking place. Enrollment is already dropping. We've, uh, another NPR uh, kind of interview was talking about how enrollment is dropping across the board. Now, I view this, and I did this in my, in my cop exam, but I view this as a re- reverberation of the 2008. 2008- uh, recession, right? Mm-hmm. Fewer people decide to have children when they traditionally were supposed to. The millennials are busy just trying to find a job, and there's no access to real housing in terms of like a starter home. So you're going to see a a dirt a birth dirt that's going to affect enrollment for the next 10 years. And the people that are going to come are not people who can call up uncle and say, Hey, let me join your organization. Mm -hmm. it's going to be folks who are first generation second generation students who whose families still value education as the pathway to opportunity so how are we going to make sure they come to us got to change the way you do things you have to de like you said decolonize the curriculum really think about what the canon is how do we expand the voices within theory Mm
2: -hmm.
1: creation and and Pedagogical practice and how do we how do we adopt a more what I call feminist approach of bringing people into community as opposed to anti andragogical frameworks where you just talk down to people right you try to fill people's heads
2: mm-hmm.
1: it, there's a lot of pieces and culture change is not something that happens just because I or anyone else wants it to So you have to work even across with those people who really get under your skin, you know, and that's okay too. It's okay.
2: Yeah. And the the reality that, um, everyone won't be saved and everyone won't come along.
1: You know what? The best thing I heard, I think it was our orientation. I never forgot it. All Mm -hmm. you need is 30%. (laughs) In order for change to be enacted, all you need is 30%. I believe, uh, Van Caesar brought that up in his portion of the orientation, but Mm -hmm. um, you bring 30% and some folks are going to be curious and want to know what those people are doing. Other folks are not going to want to be left behind. And then you have that small subset who, no matter what the idea, never wants change, never wants to have to develop themselves, never wants to have to incorporate new and exciting practices into their own.
2: And we have to respect
1: that, right? Well, listen, (laughs) this is what my father, my father brings this up. Listen, we didn't come from a very religious household, but my Mm -hmm. father was brought up religious. Mm -hmm. And he brings up this idea of Moses all the time. (laughs) Moses, right? Freed his people, brought them out of Egypt into the desert. Mm -hmm. Now, he could have just slaughtered all the old generation who saw themselves as slaves.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: But instead, he walked with them
2: mm-hmm. and
1: he walked with them. And for 40 years, they walked until the old way died. Mm-hmm. You can't just slice and cut and and uh, cancel. What we have to do is begin to show a new path. The children who are already light years ahead in what they value. hmm and then we begin to shift the way that we approach things, the way that we create our laws and policies, our rules and regulations, our expectations for each other, we will become more communal because that is what we inherently are, right? We are communal creatures, we need each other. There is no one that lives or operates in isolation. So, let's remember that and let's find ways to connect inter dependently, and with compassion. But man, I'll walk with those old folk. Well, you know, I mean, look look at our, look at our politics, right? Mm -hmm. These folks are 75, 80 years old, still grasping onto power. I'll walk Mm -hmm. with them. Let's take a walk. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and to your point, you know, it's, it's having the opportunity to walk with them, having the opportunity mm-hmm. to have these conversations. Um, you started this whole piece by talking about uh, having the opportunity to engage, to share, um, and, and bringing people together as opposed to creating more division. And I think your final point um, reinforces that. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to we're we're trying to affect change obviously yes 100 percent, but not at the expense of you know forcing people to do something that that they're just so uncomfortable with um and this is this is my piece this is when we talk about appreciative inquiry right you come to me you're like hey let's talk about critical theory absolutely but i don't want to live in critical theory i want us to look at the problems that exist i want us to look at yes this is our history. Mm-hmm. Let's own it. What can we do from here? How can we improve things? How can we change? How can we leave our environment a better place? Mm-hmm. And I think that that in and of itself is is well, profound, and not just because I'm saying. Um, it, it's it's important for all of us. So I
1: think also being considerate of not everyone. Feels the same way you do because not everyone experienced the same kind of harm or the same kind of privilege as you have, mm-hmm. and there needs to be space for that to be okay too. Yep,
2: yeah, Yeah. hundred percent. How are you taking care of you? Because that's a lot of work, and that's one of the things that Listen, I think is really. Important. I'm going to be real
1: honest, and I shouldn't <laughs> say this on the podcast, but I'm going to say it. I haven't really spent as much time on my dissertation as I would like because I am really work, making sure I understand. I mean, this is the end of my week six. I just got Mm -hmm. here. There's Mm -hmm. so much work to do that I think also will, in the end, effectively inform how I narrow Mm -hmm. the giant topic of institutional change through a equity Mm -hmm. lens. You know, that's so big Mm -hmm. um, and will take a lifetime. Um, So I put that on hold and I've decided that that's okay for me. Dr. Gabby, we should probably talk about what that means at some Mm -hmm. point. And also, I remember that I have a partner at home, and Mm -hmm. I have my dog, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and I need to make time for them. Mm -hmm. My my partner's birthday is on Monday, and I completely forgot that we were so close. I knew when his Mm -hmm. birthday was, but I've been sitting here and working and trying, and all of a sudden, it's Friday, And shoot, I'm making like a ton of text messages. Hey, let's get together. I want him to feel special. But I'm putting people, you know, last minute that's so unfair. So I have to work on, and my father helped me with this too, 30 minutes a day, get the heck out of this office and just decompress. Take a walk, go get some food, breathe so I can come back as effective in the afternoon as when I came in the morning making sure I remember to eat, making sure I get to bed at a reasonable hour, right? Drinking water, all of these things. They're very simple, but I never used to do them. And I feel like I have such an enormous responsibility now that I have to take care of myself. I have to go and enjoy my weekends because the rest of the week is really me laying everything out on the table for Department of the people I'm around and with.
2: Transformational I mean, leadership
1: is hard, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. Well, I want to congratulate you on finding space to prioritize that because a lot of people that are in helping professions, such as educators and, and people who are constantly pouring out, don't do that and oftentimes either get really sick or leave this earth before their time so oh, thank no. you for sharing that and i hope it is an encouragement to those who will listen to the podcast
1: well uh, to uh, listen, do this
2: hard work
1: <laughs> charlotte i i heard just the other day uh people in this in this kind of role these dei right mm-hmm. chief diversity officers it's like a three or four year shelf life mm-hmm. every disappointment feels like a crushing defeat right yeah every reliance on the status quo is Mm -hmm. like your heart gets cut out Mm -hmm. but you have to remember and for anyone who's in those positions and i'm trying to just remember this too is that those decisions are not personal it's the system it's not the people and if you can remember that part then it makes it easier to figure out a new way around the next obstacle and that's something that i'm just learning It's a lifetime of work. You know. Yes, it
2: is. Thank you.
0: Definitely. Thank you. Well, we're coming up here to our time and I want to be respectful of your time. So with that, are there any last parting words you want to leave us with before we close the the podcast today?
1: Uh, I would just say, uh, remember that this work is done in partnership and in community. And no single person is expected to change the world on their own. And all it takes is a conversation to get the ball rolling. So don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to speak up and elevate your own voice. Remember, paciencia, (laughs) patience, one day at a time. Dr. Gabby, I I wanna thank you so much. never thought that my voice would be elevated after working on the other side of, you know, the operations of this. But I, I really appreciate you asking me to come. It has been an honor and a pleasure to see, see you both and, um, and to be on, on with you. Thank
0: you. Oh, the, the honor and the pleasure yeah. is all ours. Having yeah. you here, having you share your thoughts, telling us just a little bit of what you're doing um, mm-hmm. is inspirational. So thank you, Rob, for being here today.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: And with that, thank you all for joining us today. If you've enjoyed today's session, please remember to uh, click the subscribe button. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you all next week.